welcome to Conversations About Life. This is a conversation with Robert Riggs, who is the Chief Operations Officer of an organization called Lift Up the Vulnerable. And my audio got messed up on this conversation. We were having some technical problems and anyway, but um, Rob's audio sounds fine. So I'm re-recording my side of the conversation and really most of it is him and that's where the value comes from this conversation. So I hope that you enjoy it. Um, I start off by um, just introducing him and then um, asking him to... um, just explain how he got started in Christianity, and and I think that's where we'll start off. Uh, well, I I mean I, I'll just say it's it's really a pleasure to be here, and I'm I'm looking forward to the conversation, and uh, you know we'll see wherever it goes, and I'm happy to talk about uh, anything that you'd like. Really, um, of course, I'd like to talk about lift up the vulnerable at some point, but uh, it doesn't have to uh, certainly doesn't have to begin there. Yeah. Well, I, I grew up in a Christian home. Um, my mother was a Christian since she was a young child, and um, that was due to her her father, my grandfather, uh, becoming a Christian when he was in his 20s. He was a Hungarian immigrant, and um, he didn't believe anything um, until he was in his early 20s, and then he, he met a man in uh, Massachusetts, <laughs> who uh, mentored him and, and showed him a lot of Christ's love, and he um, became a Christian, and he's been very committed to that, uh, and he's still alive, um, 98 years old. And so my mother was a Christian. Um, my, my grandmother was from a, a Methodist family, um, and so she was an American. My grandfather was a Hungarian immigrant. They had my mother and her two sisters. And they raised them attending church. And, and so then my mother followed suit. And I, as long as I can remember, um, I was attending, you know, Sunday school and, and church service and vacation Bible school and um, uh, actually attended a, a small um, Mennonite Christian school for a period of my younger years. So uh, my, my, uh, my experience of Christianity is as far back as I can remember having a memory. Next, I ask Rob what gives him confidence in the Christian faith. And this is his answer. <laughs> well, you, you, you like to ask very simple questions, I see. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, this is a, a really... Um, the, the answer to this question is going to be wind us through my experience with Christianity and Islam and other um, world religions that's gotten me up to where I am today. Um, and so the short story is that although I grew up in a uh, small Bible church in Pennsylvania, um, my experience of Christianity, even while I was living in the United States, was quite diverse. Um, I had the pleasure of attending a um, African-American majority Pentecostal apostolic church for three years um, in which I was baptized. Um, 
And I was, um, I attended what was at that time in the eighties, the kind of the beginnings of mega churches. Um, and, uh, in I've attended, uh, when I went to, I, I attended Grove city college, which is a, um, Presbyterian USA affiliated college. Um, but, uh, and Presbyterian USA is on the liberal side of the Christian faith in the U S but the, the faculty at Grove city college would teach reformed, uh, doctrine. And so I became very familiar and frankly enthralled with John Calvin and the, and the reformed version for exactly what you pointed to, the idea of trying their very best to come up with objective criteria that could prove the truthfulness of the Bible and the, and the logic and the idea of that. And that logic kind of, um, it matched very well with my personality because my personality is, is very much of a perfectionist, idealist, detail-oriented person who is type A and wants everything to work out perfectly and fit into the proper boxes and check off everything the way it should. And of course, um, Christianity is more than logic and, and, you know, claims to objective truth. It's about mystery and the power of God and the Holy spirit and, um, and a lot of other, um, things that I think are probably, if we were honest with ourselves, and I, I will say I'm trying to be honest with myself, are inexplicable uh, according to a limited understanding of reality that tends to be the worldview shared by many uh, scientists. Not today, I should say, post-enlightenment. Um, of course, the great scientists of long time ago were committed Christians like Sir Isaac Newton and many others. But um, so everything was going along great. I was at Grove City. I felt like I'd solved all the, all the problems. I even have a big book on my shelf called uh, uh, Problem Verses of the Bible or something and a really detailed of everyone, explaining everyone. But then I, I um, uh, d- decided when I was a junior in college that I wanted to become a professor of Middle East studies, very specific determination. And that led me to commit myself to working, uh, to going to the country of Jordan for two years to study Arabic. And I attended a a school there called the uh, Kelsey Arabic school, which was founded by a Christian missionary who went to Wheaton college. Uh, He was a contemporary of Billy Graham. And his name was George Kelsey. He was an archaeologist, a student. He went there as a missionary, got to Jordan in 1955, realized this is a really hard language. I don't know how to speak. And there's no good ways to learn it. So he created his own school. He hired all Christian women, Jordanian Christian women who were part of the Evangelical Free Church of Jordan, which I didn't know existed until I went there. Um, and what? A, and I went to Jordan with a certain set of ideas about Christianity. And this is where I'm headed with this. Christianity is a global religion now um, in our lifetime. Now, 120 years ago, you could make the argument that Christianity, although it had begun in the Middle East and and spread into Central Asia and all the way to Japan, 
um, was pretty much a European and North American and South American, or a European and America's religion, with the exception of small enclaves of people who converted in Africa or somewhere else in a you know in Asia um, where missionaries had gone, but it was by by you know great majority a European had become a European religion, but today. Christianity is has become so diverse that um, the question you bring up about the issue of culture and what's objective and what is, um, you know, what what should we practice? Like, it's fine to say we all believe in the Bible, but how should we how should we actualize it? Like, you know, how do we put it into practice? And this is where my whole world was shaken because I went to Jordan. They encountered a whole bunch of Iraqi Christians, Sudanese Christians. Um, ironically, I didn't know that 20 years later I'd be working with directly with um, Sudanese brothers and sisters. And and uh, but I, it was a, a Sudanese Christian community who were studying at a Jordanian evangelical theological seminary to become go back to South Sudan and become pastors. And this is in the year 2001. And but they the way they worshipped and the way they did their sermons and the way they even understood some of the verses and how to live out their faith was a little bit different than what I learned all through my life to that point. And it was all in a different language and they were using a different translation of the Bible. So sometimes the verses, when I try to translate them, the, the meaning was just slightly different, but not, not wrong, not, not opposed, but a little bit different shade of meaning emphasis and all these, all these, exp- and then of course there was the fact that Jordan is still a ninety-five percent Muslim country. So I was interacting with the minority, the Christians, because the program I was studying in required us to attend two church services a week, so we could learn the Christian Arabic vocabulary, which is slightly different than the Muslim Arabic vocabulary, because most of the people attending that school were what they called church workers, but we would call them missionaries <laughs> um, because, and so there was this whole larger question about, you know, how do I behave with the doctor that was making my new set of glasses when I burned my eyes, <laughs> you know, blue eyes in the harsh desert sun. And, you know, and, and he was a, you know, a Palestinian, very committed Muslim who was inviting me to his like break the fast with him during Ramadan the first year I was there and um, couldn't understand why I was clinging to these strange and illogical beliefs like the Trinity. Does that make any sense? Like, why do you need it? These are the kind of questions I was encountering. And of course I had lots of academic or John Calvinist (laughs) answers. uh, And it just kind of was like clashing with, with each other continuously, but still became really good friends. And I think that that experience was a watershed for me because it, it, it started to expand my understanding of like God's loves the world. Right. I grew up in a community and it's not a criticism. It's just my experience of it, which was my, what I would kind of, understood about um god was that you know maybe loves the world kind of but you know he really loves me 
<laughs> and the Christians and, and, you know, the Christian community. And I think that that, um, uh, I think there's something changed there because I, it started to make me realize that when we say that you're led by the spirit or that you're, you know, God's spirit is working through you in some way. Um, how does that, what does that mean? Like to me that, that boiled down to love, right? Really like loving everybody I met and genuinely accepting that person, you know, as they were and kind of like taking, taking life as it comes in, in some sense and trusting that if you have opportunity to have a, a deep, one of those meaningful conversations about life, like we're having here that, you know, maybe the words will come to me. Maybe I'll have the right thing to say if I approach somebody from a spirit of love. And that, I think that was just life-changing for me. And that second half of my life, which has now been, um, you know, I've tried to, to, to make that more practical. So can I answer all the questions about like, you know, variants or, you know, the authorship of Isaiah or something? No, I cannot. I got, I'm not going to, you know, I, I can't get into the, into the weeds in that regard because my, my understanding of Christianity is that we, we follow the spirit of the law, not the letter of it. And that the spirit is, and that God's Holy spirit is what should, you know, exude like flow out of us. Right. And that, you know, love is patient. Love is kind. It's not, you know, it doesn't hold grudges and all the things that it says that everybody, I went to a wedding this past weekend and every wedding is first Corinthians 13, including mine read at it. But it's not just a trite thing. It's really, really meaningful and deep. If you try to live it out, <laughs> it's so hard. And I think that was where the reality check came in as an adult was, you know, ideal, what I'd been taught, which I think was still a American flavored version of Christianity versus a, a little bit of a broader view of the global, global faith. So it's a very long answer, I know, but it's, it's, you know, it's my life history. So. One thing that's obvious from talking with Rob is that he's very passionate about this organization that he's involved with, Lift Up the Vulnerable. So I ask him first about, you know, where does that passion come from? Um, it, this is a very short answer. It's because my, I can't read the Bible uh, without getting a very strong sense that if you harm a person that's innocent, if you, you know, put somebody lie and say somebody did something they didn't do and they, they lose their life or their wealth because of it, if they're orphaned and you just ignore them and let them pass them by, then you're way out of line with God's heart for humanity. And, and you're somehow you've gotten your priorities mixed up. That's my feeling. And so I have a really, really, really strong sense of justice of what should be right. It goes back to my idealist to my personality, but I think it's also comes partially out of just the heart of God. God does not tolerate um, corruption, injustice, religious hypocrisy, or really, I think maybe in inauthenticity in general. Um, and I just find that wherever I see something in a world that just seems like 
somebody is getting the short end of the stick and it's caused by a human, <laughs> another human. I'm mad. I'm angry. And, and I, and I try to control my anger and direct it towards, um, putting all my God, you know, God given gifts and skills into a specific direction and see if I can make a change. And I'm one of those people in the world that really believes I can make a big impact and I'm not going to stop believing that. And so that's, you know, lift up the vulnerable is the latest iteration of this. You know, I, I, I've been involved with the department of homeless services in New York city. Um, another population that is, um, very underserved or poorly served or missed, you know, or, or abused. Um, I'm really passionate about supporting persons with disabilities of all types. Um, you know, there was a time where I was really actively involved in a number of other social issues in the United States that I consider to be evil. And I suspect that if I'd been alive during the civil rights movement or during the anti-slavery movement, I'm sure I would have been a part of them <laughs> It's like, because I can't help it. That's who I am. But yeah, that's the, that's the, why I'm passionate about it is because it's, it's like hardwired into my personality and it, and, and I find that actually, I don't think any, any, even if we go beyond Christianity, I don't think there's any world religion whose understanding of God or the higher power is one in which it's, it just, you know, it, it encourages the rich to trample on the poor, for example. Um, I, I Maybe I'm wrong, but I haven't encountered many of those type. So, and certainly isn't one that, uh, a God that I would want to believe in. Injustice is something that um, Rob is uh, passionate about, um, about working against injustice. And I ask Rob, you know, is there anything that he sees in the U.S.? Um, as far as injustice, like what comes to mind um, as, as far as injustice right here? Well, I, I, I mean, it's going to sound like it's just, just a segue, but I think it's true that, you know, modern slavery or human trafficking is, is happening under our very noses. Um, it's here and it's um, still not given nearly the attention it, it deserves at a local level. And so there are a lot of people that just kind of turn a blind eye, you know, like the story of the Good Samaritan. And they just walk down that road and they see there's the person and they might think there's something odd about this, like man and this girl. And it doesn't seem like they're together, but they just, you know, move about their business as an example. But those kind of things really, um, you know, those really burn me up, <laughs> frankly. Um, other things like. I don't, I mean, I, I definitely think most people that saw the video of George Floyd were pretty heartbroken. I mean, it's a painful thing to watch. I mean, we literally as a group of Americans watched a person die before our very eyes. And it's painful for so many reasons because I have family members who are police officers who are wonderful people who are committed to their communities, who love them um, and serve very well. And at the same time, you know, I live in, in New York City and in the community that's directly around my house, there's, um, a, you know, it's, it's a population that ha sometimes is abused by authorities or ignored. And so I think all of those issues point to the same problem to me, which is that lack of love, um, care for self more than the other, 
care for money <laughs> more than anything. Um, you know, so I could go on and on, but I think all those things are um, frustrating to me. So my next question is about lift up the vulnerable, which um, I asked Rob just to tell us what it's all about. So lift up the vulnerable is a, it's a Christian mission that is um, dedicated to the prevention of human trafficking and particularly in uh, places in the world where very little um, help is available and and very few people are willing to go and in our and and more specifically in the context of conflict and war zones and our specific Christian mission is dedicated to um, we support or we have a network of anti-trafficking centers that are indigenously directed and led. And that's something I, I hope I can talk more about because that's um, it's important to know who those people that are leading are. And also um, that is a network that is the only one of its kind that spans both Sudan and South Sudan, two countries in East Africa. And, um, the, and so our, our mission really is to, uh, we call ourselves lift up the vulnerable because we believe that when we empower people who are vulnerable, we transform the world and that we're, you know, that we are dedicated, we're envisioning and we believe with faith that in a world where vulnerable children and women are empowered and through them, those same war-torn communities are transformed. And so that is a, that is the mission that we, um, that we're, dedicated to specifically we're a i guess you could say we're a cause a cause based mission um and we are we are christian and our um our network of of centers are christian centers um and we uh but but we um we believe that the um that that this is our way of making a difference in the world right and in a restoring justice like we believe that god is very concerned about to those who are orphans widows and most of the population that we support um, have been displaced from their homes and home communities by decades of continuous warfare and conflict Um, south sudan and sudan are two countries in the world that have faced the longest sustained period of warfare that i know of in recorded human history Um, it's from uh, the time I was born, 1977, or maybe earlier, um, there have been conflict and it's, it's accelerated, um, to the point of genocide. And so our mission began in Darfur, near to Darfur. Um, and, and I'm sure many of the, your listeners and you remember that in 2003, 2004, 2005, all the movie stars were taught wearing t-shirts saying save Darfur and, um, and it was a, a, a terrible genocide that was perpetrated by the um, military dictator of the government and it was United Sudan at that time. His name was Bashir, um, where he used his own military to um, drive people from their homes, burn their homes, kill countless thousands ruthlessly um, just for resources, essentially. And uh, we were in a position where 
the uh, the original, the first leader of the first of the three centers um, had been a part of that displacement and chaos, and he was called by God to stay in his homeland and begin a school for children who were orphaned and with nothing. Um, and he started teaching them under a tree <laughs> and with, you know, not, nothing around. And uh, it was in his home homeland. He returned to it, although he could have come to the U.S. Um, he had a visa lined up. And uh, he inspired the founder of our mission, who then began to work with him. And that, that's how things started. And it's grown from there. Um, and I'm a, I'm a latecomer, but I'm very passionate about it because um, we were, we've met the leaders. We know them. We're not sending a, a cash handout, you know, now and then, and just saying, have a nice life. Um, we, we have personal relationships with them. We know their struggles. We know their joys. We share it with them. And, and to me, it's uh, tremendously inspiring to see the joy and the, the drive that the, everybody that works in, in the, in the mission has, and to know that 97% of those that are working at the three centers and include the, the staff in the U S and Kenya, 97% of those are Sudanese people, right. Who are believers who um, will end they'll end their sentences with saying in the name of Jesus Christ, which is a very common um, thing to say in Arabic. Um, and they, um, they're just, they're very, very committed to seeing a future and seeing a, a different, a different uh, situation than what they're living. And I think that that level of hope is just, you know, it's, um, it's, it's very, very inspiring. And I think it fuels all of us to, to, um, to want to do more. I asked Rob about the indigenous leadership that he referred to. Yes, that's part of it. Actually, I'll give you an anecdote. Um, one of my relatives um, asked me at one point, you know, why don't you just, why don't you go over there? You know, Arabic and, you know, you could do so much. And my answer to him was, no, I could not. <laughs> um, because I'm not from the, the, the community, the variety of Arabic, the, 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 the knowledge, the, the knowledge that you build from being from a, an area and how to get things done is the secret that's the secret to our success. And it's not just the knowledge, but it's being given the decision-making power to do it. See, this is where I, I, well, this is the thing that I've found to be, I believed in theory. And when I saw it put into practice, I realized how hard, but how vital it is to do this. And I believed in the theory because I found that in my experience with um, not just Christian missionaries, but aid workers of any company, whether it was a UN, whether it was a, a large private aid and relief organization, um, tended to be because they were founded in by Americans most of the time or British, 
and supported mostly by Americans, there's this tendency to um, to not trust the people that you're sending resources to to use them wisely. And of course, that skepticism in some cases may be warranted, but um, but the flip side is that when you disempower people and you dictate to them, this is, here's the money, I have the power, you listen to me. That's what's kind of implied when you start trying to determine everything in the mission yourself. And I just don't find it to be effective, not just in like making good choices about how to keep the mission running, but also in terms of like community relations. Um, you know, it's, it's very different when you arrive as a kind of lauded foreigner and everybody in the community is looking at you as some kind of a, um, uh, dare I say, a white savior <laughs> in my case. Um, and we're not that. We don't want to be that, right? We, 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 and, and if you start to send um, people from a different culture there, uh, it, um, it kind of also allows people off the hook in some way, practically speaking, because it's, it's kind of creating this more academically we'd call dependency. And we're trying to avoid creating dependency because in places in the world that are the poorest, extreme poverty like South Sudan and the parts of Sudan that we work in, most of the population is already dependent because of the nature of how the world currently works. The government won't support them or even is attacking and trying to kill them. And they can't grow their own food because they're on the run because you never know when the bomber is going to come or landmines are placed in your field or burned or something. So you can't grow your own food. The government won't give it to you. Who gives it to you? The UN, World Food Program, Food and Agricultural Association, Save the Children, Samaritan's Purse, uh, world vision, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all doing good work. And we did the same work when we started when in Darfur, people were showing up burnt half to death, right? And, um, you know, missing limbs. And you just wanted to keep people alive and children were extremely malnourished. So short-term crisis aid is necessary. But what most of the time happens is it becomes long-term dependency. And those organizations that get in don't have an exit strategy to either get out or, or hand the reins of power over to those that really should be driving the mission. And so we've done that. And it is extremely hard work because, and the hard work is actually the ego, I think, more than all the time spent, more than all the planning, more than all the discussion about, you know, hey, so-and-so, can you explain to me why it won't work in your society? And then I have to sit and listen. And that's where the ego comes in, especially for a type A person like me. I want to jump in. I want to cut them off. I say, well, wait a minute. You said this, but then you, you contradicted yourself. Maybe not. Maybe I wasn't listening well, right? And I think that's seeing that practically has been uh, really um, spiritually rewarding, um, because, um, you know, it knocked me down a few notches, right? It, 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 it forced, it's forced me to, um, to come to grips with ugly parts of my 
like you know ego or just the dark parts of the soul where you know you want to you want to teach somebody a lesson or, or you know out, you know do something like that and and it's um you know god's grace is sufficient and you know we can trust that we can be always forgiven however um i do think that's why we're that's why i'm so passionate about the indigenously led part because a lot of people say we let the the people the local community lead um but then when you look under the hood of the car you really dig beneath the surface it's not actually the case that there's real decision-making power, but in the case of the leaders and their staff, and even all the way down to the children, they, they cascade down um, handing more and more responsibility to the upcoming next leader. So I sat in a church service in the Nuba Mountains, entirely led by children led well <laughs> with a substantial sermon by an older like high school student at our at our location there um the songs were led by the by a, a student choir leader and uh one of those younger children said the closing prayer like an elementary maybe like i don't know what i'm not sure which grade but uh, an elementary s- student and um uh, and the only per- adult that said a word was just the pastor who's on staff who read um, the scripture, uh, one of the, no, no, actually, I, I, I apologize. No, he didn't. He, he, um, led them in a, a, a very common ritual prayer in Arabic speaking Christian churches, which is the Lord's prayer. Um, you know, I mean, there are still a lot of Christian churches in the United States who every Sunday, the Lord's prayer is, is recited as part of their service. Uh, more formal traditions, more than less formal, like the ones that I grew up in. However, um, I just, I, I often used to wonder, like, is it become just like a recitation without thought or meaning? Um, but when it's being recited in a place where, you know, you know, um, your things like kingdom come, I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And his will is not being done <laughs> in a lot of cases. I mean, most of the people reciting that those verses have faced tremendous persecution and hardship um, to the kind of degree that I hope I'll never see. Um, and I hope they never see it again. Um, and, and so I think there's something really powerful about that and the idea of like ownership of, of a process and, uh, and and that I think is what makes them so successful, and and it's really exciting to be a part of that. Um, although, like I said, it's an ego uh, ego buster. <laughs> I ask about some of the other organizations that um, Rob is familiar with, and if he sees them at work and so forth. Well, oh, I'm, I definitely don't want to um, criticize another organization. Um, I don't. I can't say that. I, I can't say I have intimate knowledge of how operations work at any of the organizations I named. Um, and I can say this: um, specifically, Samaritan's Purse has a pretty robust presence at some of the same locations we do, and it ends up 
has become in some case a really good synergy um, because um, they have the resources to be able to loan out 40 or 50 tractors, um, which is a really, really valuable commodity in agricultural society that is recovering from war. And, and they, so they can leverage some, some serious resources. And I think the, the, the challenge that every organization has, and we'll, we will face it too, is as you grow, as you grow, how do you keep your ear close to the ground? How do you stay uh, attuned to the heart of the people that you're working with and stay truly kind of collaborators and colleagues and, and, you know, not, not get become sort of too big. And again, I'm not saying that that's the case with Samaritan's for I'm just giving it, I'm slipping into more of my uh, interim period where I was a professor. Right. So, um, and that, yeah, but I think, um, I think, I think most organizations would like to move away from creating dependency. I don't think it was ever the intention of an, any organization that I named at all. It's just uh, like we have to be intentional about having a new strategy when the crisis is passed. That's the that's that's really what it, it comes down to, I think. At least to my as as best as best as I understand the the situation, and I'm, I'm sure I'll learn a lot more in the next twenty years. <laughs> so, I asked Rob about love. Um, and just what how what he has learned over the years about love, um, and the way I'm thinking of love, it's as like serving, thinking about someone else, um, and of course, you know that's kind of a continuum. Um, we can, um, you know, there has to be some regard given given for ourselves um, because we're responsible to take care of ourselves, but then um, I think. But then, um, on the other hand, you know, if we're, uh, of course, it's wrong to be selfish and just self-seeking. Um, so anyway, that seems to be like a continuum about, you know, uh, where are we? Like, are we leaning way toward self-focus or way toward um, outwardly focused and the world and others? And anyway, I just asked Rob his thoughts about that and his understanding and how he has grown in that. Yeah. Well, that's a, I mean, like I said, you're asking all these very simplistic and surface level questions, um, but, <laughs> and I can tell about the dry sense of humor. And, but these are the core questions of being a human and, and like being a follower of God and a child of God is, are we able to grow and like become more like him, right? In terms of his heart that was as big enough to encompass every single human that's ever lived. Right. And I think that that is such a um, difficult concept to grasp that it's better to go with the small ball, <laughs> play the, play the small, you know, the, the, the local game more than trying to um, take on the whole world's problems or, you know, I think we have to start with, and this is, I'll say this as a theory and I'll talk about how I've gotten to this point is we have to start with the individuals, like the people in our lives, the people that are closest to us. Like, how do I treat my mother? How do I treat my wife? How do I treat, you know, my children? How do I treat 
um, even at my pets, <laughs> um, and like start to expand from there. And I think this is the, this is a roundabout way of answering your question, which is that I had to learn that over time through some really difficult experiences. Um, very difficult. And I think that, um, I think this was actually the big sort of spiritual lesson that I could say I've learned or I'm learning so far in my life. And I hope it'll be a lot longer and I'll have a chance to God willing to do a lot more and be better. (laughs) But, um, I, I think that growing up for me, my specific experience growing up within a church, growing up with a constant like um, cadence of information about what I should do and what I shouldn't do, it kind of double, it, it reinforced a, a the idealistic part of my personality that likes black and white. I like everything to be so clear and like, this person is evil. This person is good, right? This person, right? There is no in between, right? This thing, you know, there's no nuance. And um, again, is that a problem of the Bible? Is that a problem of even the pastors? No, it's not their problem. It was just my specific experience kind of made me fairly rigid. And also, even though I even one time in a, in a class in Jordan as an assignment, I we all said, okay, translate one of your favorite Bible stories or power or whatever it is into Arabic and tell the class a story as a practice in speaking. Cause we're all, you know, like uh, five-year-old kids in <laughs> Arabic level. And so I picked one of my favorite stories, um, you know, in the Bible, which was the one with the woman caught in adultery and the, and you know, the, all the religious people, pointing the finger at her saying she has to die. God's justice and God's law says she went against it. And what do you say, Jesus? So-called God, man, claiming to be the truth, the way, the truth and the life. (laughs) Right. And what did he say? Right. The answer was, he said nothing at first, drew his finger in the sand. Everybody's looking at waiting. It's really dramatic moment. Right. And he looks up and he says, Which one, whichever one of you, you know, hasn't sinned, throw the first stone at her. <laughs> and they all leave, right? One by one. And she's left there. And then he doesn't, you know, he doesn't say to her, you know, oh, no big deal, you know, you know. He he does just say, you know, go go forward and and he's in the Bible translated sin no more, but we could say go be better (laughs) in in like American, you know, idiomatic English. And I think, I think that that, like that concept was very familiar to me as I, in, in my head and I can recite it. And I was Bible reading as a child for my mom every night, you know, but when it came time to forgive somebody who really did a tremendous harm to me, personally, emotionally, in every way, to the point where I still get emotional just thinking about it. There's several people in my life like that who cut me deeper and in ways that um, without God's grace, I would never have recovered from. And, and maybe I'm still in recovery in some ways, emotionally. When it came time to forgive them, that's when it was, it was nah, I don't think so, right? I prefer to hold that grudge, right? Maybe love isn't 
you know, doesn't forgive all wrongs on this one. <laughs> They're just too bad, right? They just said too much. And working through that process um, is, is where it's kind of getting me where I've gone. And I just say that it's God's, you know, grace that I'm able to get to where I am. Um, because, you know, one of those people, frankly, was my father. And I know that's not a very uncommon thing to hear people say a lot. Um, and, and, you know, but, um, you know, coming to understand a little bit more about him and who he was and what he went through and what he, how he grew up um, after he had passed um, was really um, heartbreaking and painful in a, in a way that was much more painful than anything that I felt like he had done to me when he was alive. Um, and I think that that's just like, um, it's earth shattering, right? It's just like an earthquake in your soul. When you suddenly look in, in at your person who you think was really against you and you see your own face in the mirror somehow, or you, you see something similar and you realize, wow, that person really suffered a lot. And maybe they just didn't have the people in their life to support them in the way that I did. I don't know. I mean, I, but those kind of questions are hard to deal with, right? Why, why me, not him, right? Why, why this, that, and those things I, I have to always step back and say that if we really believe that God knows everything and is in control in some, you know, in some mysterious way, you know, then we just have to let it like step back from those kind of edge of questions, because I think they, they never lead anywhere good because we end up taking the place of God somehow. Right. You know, I, in, in, we don't want to admit it, but I think we do. I, at least I do. Right. Suddenly like, Oh, I got, all right. He did it because of this. If God knows everything, then he knows every single little experience I've had that made me rob. And that is millions and millions of experiences, including this one. <laughs> and so like, <laughs> Do I know all that knowledge <laughs> about every single human? No, I never know. So all those things kind of, I think, led me to, and seeing some people really pattern love to be positive, like, you know, I'll say something personal. My mother is an amazing person, and I'm sure everybody on this show would say the same thing. But, you know, her whole career was spent serving special needs children who were, um, you know, had severe um, mental disabilities. And she served them and loved them and called them her children. Like she called my brother and I her children. And I just think those kind of examples of that self-giving love are really um, a powerful antidote to our, to our selfishness. If our eyes are open to see um, and hearts but my next question was about um, learning languages. If it's worthwhile for anyone at any age, um, what kind of doors does it open? Um, and Rob's experience with uh, learning other languages. Yeah, I, I think a hundred percent, everybody should learn another language no matter what age they are. Go out, you know, get Duolingo on your phone app. You know, get like a, 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 a um, borrow something from the local library, tape, <laughs> not tapes. <laughs> I don't know. Why uh, you know, uh, 
audio file, you can sometimes even borrow those. Um, you know, language courses are very reasonable um, cost-wise. And now with smartphones, it makes it really easy to practice and, for, and makes it fun. But those are just tips about what you should do when you've decided to do it. The reason to study another language is because language is the basket in which culture is held. And that's a phrase that I should copyright because I made it up one time in this teaching. But it is really true. I I didn't really understand anything about Middle Eastern culture or more particularly Arabic speaking culture until I lived there a couple of years and learned the language to a level at which I could have like a a, a decent communication, you know, um, conversation with someone. And all of a sudden I realized, wow, I'm I'm picking up their mannerisms. I'm using my hands in the same way as they do. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm liking the same food. Oh, I'm dressing the same way. Like, and I didn't, it wasn't conscious. Some people it's like, you know, the, the so-called like the person who quote unquote goes native or something. And this is like these stereotypes, but it wasn't that it was just the, um, the brain uses different synapses or different neurons and circuitries for each language you learn. That's like the part that's the scientific part. They've really studied like what happens when somebody learns a second language. It opens up another part of their brain, another way of think, thinking. It staves off. Okay. There's some argument that it could stave off like dementia and or memory loss or at least. Um, and so I've known people who, started studying a language as difficult as Arabic. Now, first of all, I should say for everybody listening, you don't have to pick, you don't have to pick a language with a different alphabet that goes right to left <laughs> and, um, at, and, and, a, and a bunch of um, more difficult to pronounce letters to learn another language. <laughs> right? and there's, there's, there's a lot of availability of learning Spanish, especially in the United States, it's also very pragmatically useful. <laughs> um, and you may make a lot of new friends with that. But yeah, I think I think I've known people that have studied language in their 50s, started in their 50s, 60s, love it. Are they ever going to speak like a native speaker? No. Do I speak like a native speaker? No, I do not. I have a, I'm always going to speak Arabic with an American accent because I started when I was in my 20s. The only way you won't is if you start when you're like, a missionary kid or a child of a you know, somebody working in an international company and you grew up there when you're like seven, eight, and your brain sucks it in like a sponge. Um, those are the people I, I'm really envious of, even though love shouldn't envy. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's 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 really rewarding because then you meet pe- you 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 connect with people in a way that we don't realize what we do. Like I'm connecting with you in a certain way because we're both Americans. We understand each other's idioms and phrases. Um, but if I, you know, if I can go up to someone who's a recent uh, immigrant, for example, to the United States and speaks very little English and I can say, hello, how are you? Do you need anything? It, 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 it's also a way of extending God's love to, to people too, because it puts it 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 takes off some of that stress that you inevitably feel when you lose your ability to communicate. That was the hardest thing about living in a country where everybody spoke a different language. Was I felt like I I was I went from being an extremely talkative person to being a mute 
and feeling um, completely um, all of my power taken away. And, and that was a very, it caused a lot of stress. And I, so I have a lot of empathy for, for those that are learning English as a second language or sometimes third, sometimes it's their fourth. <laughs> um, and so I think that that's a chance for us to also, for those that are listening there are concerned about like being like Jesus and living out their faith and, and sharing God's love with others. It's a really, it's a really easy way <laughs> in some sense. Um, and, but really, really meaningful and powerful too. Then I ask, what do you find most satisfying, Rob, in your life? The most by far, and this isn't even a, this is the easiest question you've asked the whole, the whole, (laughs) the whole conversation. By far, the, the thing that's most satisfying to me is, is spending time with my wife. Um, it's just like, we are both working professionals. Um, we're both very busy during the day. And so that time together, when the when the work day ends, and even like having lunch together when we were able to, um, those moments are just like uh, the sweetest and most valuable moments of my life. And I say that because I I truly did marry my best friend, and um, you know we are very well aligned and the most important thing that we share is that we really love people. And so we get to do that for each other first. And, and it's not hard. That's the thing, you know, it's not, it's not hard. Like for me, I understand that there are all kinds of different experiences people have with, with that relationship particularly. And sometimes it's tragic. Sometimes it's difficult, but I just, I say, you know, it's one of God's great mercies and, and um, you know, point of, of real grace in my life that it's not hard for me. <laughs> it's never been hard. It's easy. It's so easy because she's just a lovable person. And so that's the most, that's the thing. And, and in terms of dealing with job, a job that is emotionally can really take its toll. Um having somebody that can really be there and just listen and be like an empathizer with you and with the, and with the people that are struggling and with the story she's hearing and, and a confidant that, you know, you can share anything with, and they're not going to, it's not going to go outside of their ear and they're going to understand. And they're not going to judge me if I, if they see that I, I made a mistake, those things are just, um, I, I, you can't put a price on them. Right. So, that's that's the thing that I, I I'd say, um, you know, and and having a chance to be in that relationship and um, yeah, like I said, God's grace is is very powerful and and um, and he it was a real gift to me and I hope she can say the same, but I'll speak for myself and say, you know, how would you like to grow as a person? Um. Well. Um, Main thing is I, I I'd say I'd like to grow in authenticity. Um, and, and, and I, I mean very specifically kind of owning who I am and allowing like the things that I've picked up along the way that are just bad habits to kind of fall away and, 
Um, you know, and that, that I think is just something that's so important to me. Um, I, I think that, you know, I joke with, with, with people that, you know, I've, at the age of 44, I finally figured it out. <laughs> you know, but I mean, it, it's, a, there's so much truth to that. And, and that I just, you know, there were, there were certain things and certain patterns of behavior that were being driven by certain deeply embedded mental habits that I'd picked up or psychological habits that were reactions to something from when I was younger. And then I just kept repeating it so that I thought it was a part of my personality. And I think that that's where I'm really focusing a lot of energy is accepting who I am, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and seeing if, um, you know, if I can, if some of the ugly and the bad things can, can just, you know, become diminished and decrease and that the, the things that I can really, um, uh, that can, you know, being an authentic person, that's it. You know, I think people like authenticity and I like authenticity. And I, I know that I think we, we don't really, none of us intend to be hypocr- hypocritical. I don't think, um, or put on a, a fake version of ourselves, but somehow we end up creating this like shadow version, <laughs> you know, that ends up overshadowing who the real we are. And, I think that that that's where I'm aiming to, to. What helps you to grow? Yeah, and figuring out what those things are is the hard part. And I, I think finding some quiet space and quiet time, and holding fast to that. The morning, you know, the morning time, having that time for prayer, meditation, and just yeah, kind of a a, a health check of yourself as a person and your soul, and like you know, okay, so yesterday was a tough day. Why did I do that? <laughs> Maybe I can figure it out instead of just saying, oh, that's just who I am, right? And that's that's what I mean is like, that's hard. And I, and I can't say I'm doing it well, but I'm trying. <laughs> and I think that's what God requires of us is, is to try, right? At the right, like the right intention and, and um, I do, I do believe that he always, he's always, always faithful. I, I say, you know, we were going to on this site visit and I was with my colleague, this amazing man who, who I'm, I really love. And we were talking about how this is, this is going to be a tough trip and I don't know how things are going to work out for this and this and this and this. And I remember saying to him and part of it was words part, but mostly it was deeply believed, which was that, you know, God is extremely faithful and there's never been a point in my life where he's let me down. <laughs> now <laughs> that doesn't mean I you know, things went the way I wanted them to go, but I really believe that I really deeply believe that, um, that he is constantly and continuously faithful and, and just goes way above and beyond what we imagine that to mean. And, um, and we saw that happen too. Right, even on that one limited trip, a lot of things fell into place that could have gone sideways really easily. <laughs> it's not the, you know, these are not places that have the same level of security and and um, structures in place to prevent bad things from happening. But you know, um, 
it's it's um, it's both the quiet time and the meditation, and it's the crisis because I believe that for most people. Uh, when we say things like, oh, it's Murphy's Law, you know, one thing goes wrong, then the next thing goes wrong. And then there's long periods of time where everything seems to be going right. And of course, our determination of that is how we feel. We feel good, we feel bad, struggling, feeling happy, joy, sadness. But I learn sometimes it's those crisis moments and those big conflicts, you know, whether it's interpersonal conflict or whether it's just some something that happens where you just get like, you know, attacked by somebody for no reason that you don't even know or, but, or, you, or something gets stolen or, you know, car accident or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those, those times are always wake up calls. But if you don't follow it up with a time of contemplation and evaluating what happened when things get calm and they will return to joy because there's always that idea that that the the verse and now I'm, I'm forgetting but i'll paraphrase the end of it so like this something happens at night but joy comes in the morning right and the thing that happens at night is bad <laughs> whatever it is <laughs> and and so like th- that's the pattern of being a human and that's our i i challenge anybody to think that there, there isn't another human experience in that one where you go from these horrible, tragic losses to these um, these hill mountaintop moments, and then in between there, there's kind of like a calm, right? But to me, that that that's what is how I've learned. Like every single inflection point, every single moment where I really had a big jump. I mean by that in terms of like spiritual, intellectual, like maturity, growth. It was always at a at a, at the same time when I just suffered something really painful, you know. Like it was a major growth point for me after my father passed away. Major, like it took three four years, <laughs> but it was it was a sustained period of a lot of uh, maturity in terms of understanding something a little deeper about like. Uh, how complicated people are, right? And how how difficult, like how difficulties take their toll and things like that. And, um, you know, there's other examples I could say of this where, you know, there's just even like, you know, changing your career, it's scary, right? Moving to a new place that you don't know anybody. It's stressful. All these stress points um, always sell growth during, after that. But I think you have to marry one with the other. Right. Like just be gentle to yourself. Say, okay, I'm feeling bad. It's okay. God's still there. <laughs> it's no problem. He's <laughs> he knows. So I'm just gonna sit with it. And you know, like I think that's just another deeper level of God's grace, is that it just very you know it, the secular phrase is like time heals everything, right? But you know, is it just time? <laughs> is it just time? Um, I know some people that have became really bitter over time. Um, maybe there's something else a little more, um, a little more spiritual. Um, and I'm being a little bit sarcastic in my phrase that I believe there is, um, you know, a deeper reality and there's a, a, a loving God who is like 
actively loving on us, right? In their times where we're suffering the most. And that I'll say as a shameless plug for my organization is exactly what I've seen the leaders doing with all the children at these centers. And I think that's the magic that really is making them thrive and their lives transform. It's the love of God. It's that like flowing through God's spirit, just flowing from one person to the other. Um, and then us not getting in a way is the indigenously directed part. <laughs> but, um, but that, that to me is, is just um, tremendous to see people who go from being a child soldier to becoming a father figure for hundreds and hundreds of children. Like one of our leaders is, that's who he is. <laughs> like, here's your gun at the age of nine years old, go and shoot somebody. Imagine the kind of trauma that inflicts on a child. But through God's spirit and healing and his own, the way God created him and his personality and resilience, you know, now he's, you know, paying back in so many incredible ways. And, and that's just one, one story. I mean, there's everybody I've met that is in this work has, has a similar story because most of them are educated and don't have to be there. I would say most of the people that are our leaders could definitely choose if they wanted to, to walk away. Um, but they don't. <laughs> and they have to ask yourself the question, why? So um, those things are, it's all, to me, it's all part of the same kind of cut from the same cloth. It's God's love at work in the universe to, to just flow through it and heal people and, and bring people together and that's why I hate injustice, because I feel like it distracts people. It brings us apart. It divides us in ways that is not necessary. Um, it's, but, you know, it's, it, it is. And that's the facing the reality of our world in its broken form and seeing what part we can play and in, in seeing its healing and, and, you know, thy kingdom come right? will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a, is a really powerful prayer that I think um, it's, it's kind of like a cause. I'd say it's become a life mantra. <laughs> what advice might you have for Americans since you come from, um, you're familiar with other cultures and you can um, kind of step out of our own culture and look in and have that advantage of that perspective, what advice might you have for Americans? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I probably, despite strong advice to the contrary, I've probably preached enough here on this podcast. I'm not going to say what I, you know, what people should do, but I will say about my experience of kind of Americanism versus you know, other ways of viewing the world from other countries' perspectives and citizens of other countries, I should say, is that um, I think that the, I'll just quote my grandfather. My grandfather, you know, he was, he's a Hungarian. He was born in 1923, right after the First World War and Hungarian, Austria-Hungarian Empire was destroyed and he was super poor. And his father had to leave the family for five years and go work in a coal mine in Canada 
<laughs> across the ocean and send money back and then had the money stolen or not stolen, but misused um, by a trusted family member unintentionally, but nevertheless, they were still, they were on the edge of starvation and they, they came here um, or they came to Canada first and then to the U S and when I was a child, I never knew any of that. I didn't get it. I just knew my grandfather. Yes. Super strong man, loves God, loves everybody. He was the last person out of the door at church, like closing the lock in the door and comparing notes with my grandmother. Who'd you talk to that was new? Every single new person ever came in. He went up to them. Super like, and, and I, and he used to say to us, like whenever we'd have family gatherings, you know, you guys should just, you really have to thank God for where you were born and what you have, because there's so many people that don't have this. And it just, I have to tell you, I honestly, as a, you know, uh, a young or young man or child adolescent, it just kind of, it just became another part of that theory where I didn't disagree with it. I was like, yeah, of course, you know, you know, of course I have more than some. Now at that time when I was a child, it was like the Ethiopian famine was big and, or whatever was the latest, like, world crisis today, maybe you say it's like Ukraine or, you know, Syria or, or, you know, for those that know South Sudan. Um, but it, you know, it didn't have any direct, my real impact on my behavior. Um, and so what I, I think, um, for Americans, I think just being aware that, um, even those of us that are in the lower socioeconomic brackets in the United States are in the like one to 3% of humans in terms of wealth because of the nature of like the, the level of infrastructure and availability of food and availability of help for those that can't afford food and all kinds of free programs. And I mean, there's such a buildup of a really um, robust country that, you know, um, to own a car is like unfathomable for so many people in most of the world. Um, one car, you know, I just, yeah, it's just in, in like the level of wealth and then with wealth always comes power, political power. And so the U S is the most powerful country in the world this time. And as Americans, what that unintentionally, I think builds in us is just kind of like, um, a, an unconscious superiority approach, not mentality, but approach. It's like, that's the, the stereotype in the rest of the world of the loud, the ugly, loud American tourists, like demanding this. And you didn't have this on this room. Isn't the right one. But it's not that that person is trying to necessarily crush down somebody in another country. It's just like, we have a standard and expectation that we grow up with that just becomes second nature. It's like, well, of course all the roads should be paved. And of course, like, you know, it should take this long to this long to get somewhere. And of course I should be, I should be able to get the toilet tissue in the supermarket whenever I want. <laughs> and I guess the pandemic was a little bit of a wake up call for some of these things. And even now with the baby formula issue and other things, it's like, but that's the lived day-to-day -day reality of most people in the world. And like, I think, just coming to grips with that is really important, but also understanding that 
just because somebody doesn't shake your hand and they do something differently doesn't mean that they're they're wrong and you're right. There's so many things that we do that we miss. Um, I think I I say I misunderstood something that was just culture, and I thought it was something that was like a value or a belief, like just you know so many things that we you know jokes are hard to understand and they're other cultural jokes, but they make total sense to them and they're laughing your heads off and you're out in the cold, you know, and every, so so much of those kind of things that, um, on the, the, on our behavior that look differently, but I still have found that if you see children playing wherever it is, Sudan in Jordan, in, um, you know, here in New York, um, and little children playing, they, they just, there's a lot of similarity between us as humans. Let me just say that at a core level, at a core level, level of the soul. And, um, I think we do all have in our hearts that understanding of that's just wrong. That was just right. You know, that was good. Why does everybody cry when, when the hero sacrifices himself at the end of a movie and that's a theme that flows through films in all different cultures. That's just a tear-jerking, like super emotional moment. Why is that? The idea of like giving, sacrificing your most valuable thing you have, your life, for someone else. There's something built in that's, that's built into us. And I think recognizing those core common elements of being a human will allow us to love the world more. I think that that's, that's the thing that can really, I'd say, has helped me at least um, under, like being more like proactively loving people who, um, and, and, that, and yeah, then all the, all the differences seem so like kind of immaterial and funny. <laughs> um, so that, that's, I think that's the thing about, you know, America and growing up here. How can people follow you rob or your organization lift up the vulnerable yeah definitely so you know lift up the vulnerable is is uh has a website that's where we um you know right on the front page of it there's a opportunity to support the ministry um, financially if you choose to do so or sign up for email and the, the website is liftupthevulnerable.org without Anything else? No www. I just emphasize that again. No www. Just liftupthevulnerable.org. And it has updates on um, stories about what what we're doing um, that are updated regularly, every, you know, weekly or monthly. Um, And uh, it explains our model of how we do things and, we, we use three main main approaches like protection, education, uh, Christian K through 12 schools, and then economic development initiatives um, of all types, mainly currently mostly focused on farming. And so the website's totally up to date. We have social media, we have Facebook, Instagram, and, and then we have LinkedIn page as well. Um, you know, I encourage everyone to go and at least follow them and, and sign up for our email and learn more about what we do. I mean, our, our mission is um, our approach to fundraising and donations is invitational. It's not 
pressure sales. Right? We, do, we believe that the more you know about what we do, it'll become, uh, it's, it's a compelling mission to support. Uh, and, but we want you to know as much as possible. We want to be as transparent as possible. We put our financials on our website. We're, you know, we're part of the ECFA, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. And we do that very purposefully because we want to be good stewards of whatever we're given. And we want everybody to understand that, like you had said early in, the, in our conversation, there are all different ways to serve and help others. It doesn't require, uh, you know, it doesn't require flying a single prop, prop plane to a dirt strip to help somebody that that is, you know, that needs, you know, needs a hand, helping hand. And um, we really, really focus a lot on making sure that we are accountable to those that have entrusted us with those resources because it's it's God that gives us everything, and we. Um, and so that's, that's, you know, we, we really want, I would say, of course, every mission, the needs are so vast that of course we're going to need as much, you know, support as we can, um, financially, because the more we get, the more we can do. And we're, we, we want to see as many children supported and protected and cared for and prevented from falling into human trafficking. And that's our deepest like mission desire and so yeah i'm not I, please if your heart you know it, if god leads you to give um please consider it and and i can say with as much sincerity as i i can about anything that you know whatever you give will be used um to the very best of our abilities with god's grace involved and we'll give it our very best and all of our um, partners on the field. So, yeah, I hope everyone will, would learn more about what we do um, and, um, and pray for us. Please keep us in your prayers. It's a, very, um, it's a very challenging work. And when you challenge really evil things like human trafficking, you put yourself in a certain level of danger. And, and you know, human trafficking is to my mind, one of one of the great evils of our of our world today, um, and and it just is something we must fight against with all of our power in every way. But it it it, it incurs risk. So please be, keep us in our ministry and in all of your prayers. Um, that's where it really starts. We trust God first, and we trust Him last, and everything else we do is kind of flowing from our you know God's love for us and our attempt to be his ambassadors in this world. So that's, that's what I'll say about, about our, uh, about our mission. Thank you, Rob, for the conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was very satisfying. It was uh, helpful to me just to speak with you and be able to just to, to hear from you and from the insight that you have. So thank you. And, um, Thanks for being a guest on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure, and, and I, um, I really you know, enjoyed the opportunity. So I re- thank you very much. Mm-hmm.